Our sponsor today is GLSA. For those non-members who may be listening in, GLSA or Group Legal Services Association is an affiliate of the ABA, the American Bar Association, a professional membership organization representing the legal services plan industry and provider attorneys. And joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. Check, check it out at glsaonline.org. Okay, my name is Tom Martin. I'll be your host today. Our podcast today is What the Future of the Courts Looks Like Today with Shannon Salter. I'm very excited to introduce you to her. Uh, today's guest, Shannon Salter, is the chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal in British Columbia, Columbia Canada, and she's an adjunct professor at the UBC Allard School of Law, teaching administrative law and legal ethics. So I'm going to give you a little bit of her background. Um, it's a little more than I usually include, but I want you all, all to get a real flavor of uh, what Shannon has done because it's pretty amazing. So after she earned her uh, BA and LLB from University of British Columbia uh, and her master's from the University of Toronto, she became a uh, BC Supreme Court Judicial Law Clerk. She worked at a large Vancouver law firm. Uh, she is currently vice president of the BC Council of Administrative Tribunals and she's a board member of the Canadian Legal Information Institute, which for Americans, if you're not familiar with it, it's like this really fantastic public access to case law, uh, you know, that is free and available uh, to all. In 2017, uh, Shannon was named one of the top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada. Uh, and she was previously recognized as one of Canada's new law pioneers by the Canadian Bar Association and an Access to Justice All-Star by the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Uh, she also received an award, award in 2016 for outstanding teaching by an adjunct professor. And so she frequently, and I mean frequently, talks about all this stuff um, at, at many different places uh, about online dispute resolution, administrative law, and the future of law and technology. I'm very pleased to have her as our guest today. Shannon, how are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm feeling pretty good after that intro. <laughs> Thanks, Tom, and thank you very much for having me as a guest. It's uh, it's great to be able to participate. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you. I mean, you have a really fantastic story, uh, and you've accomplished a lot. Um, you live in Vancouver, right? N yes, North Vancouver specifically. That's right. Oh, all right, me too. And. Uh, so lately, we've had some pretty good weather, which has been a nice change, right? It's true. It's kind of a bit Mordor-like here sometimes, as you know. So we're having a good stretch. Yeah, for sure. Um, so can you tell me about your role at the Civil Resolution Tribunal? And what is it? What is the Civil Resolution Tribunal? Sure. So the Civil Resolution Tribunal, or CRT, is an online tribunal. It was the first one of its kind in Canada. And uh, when we opened in 2016, it was really the only one we knew of in the world that was integrated into the public justice system. Um, so we're an administrative tribunal, which is kind of like an administrative court for those of you in, in the States. Um, and that means that people who go through the process get a binding court order at the end of it. It's part of the public justice system and our decisions are appealable to the court. But beyond that, we do some things that are pretty innovative. You can resolve your dispute from your smartphone or your tablet. You can work on your dispute whenever it works for you. And the whole thing is meant to be very step-by-step, -step, plain language, and really focuses on collaborative dispute resolution. Um, we have jurisdiction, we started with jurisdiction over condominium disputes, and then a year later got jurisdiction over small claims, $5,000 and under. So your everyday kind of loans or things you bought on Craigslist that didn't work or neighbor disputes over fences. And then uh, just on April 1st, so only a couple of weeks ago now, we assumed jurisdiction over what we expect will be about 80% of all motor vehicle personal injury disputes in BC. So pretty wide ranging, expansive jurisdiction in a short period of time. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing, especially that last one. And uh We'll get into that later, but um, how did you get involved with the CRT? I came from a, an administrative law background. So I, I teach administrative law at uh, our law school here at UBC. I also served previously as vice chair of the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, another 
administrative tribunal. So I knew something about administrative law and tribunals and and um, and that sort of thing. But then when this uh, position came up and I was appointed chair, I didn't really fully understand what I was in for. One of the things that really surprised me is how much change management was necessary. I sort of thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll be the person who understands what the administrative law requirements are, who can tell you how to how a tribunal runs. But that was really just one small part of what has turned out to be a fascinating uh, job, um, not the least of which because I work with just an incredible interdisciplinary team um, all over the province. Wow. So this probably wasn't what you thought of when you first graduated from law school, right? <laughs> no, I was going to be a partner at a big law firm and uh, be arguing court cases uh, every week in, in my robes, in my mind. Um, but no, you know, I, I practiced as a civil litigator for a few years. And then uh, my husband and I took a break and went to Toronto and did master's degrees and had a baby, which is not, is only a thing you will do with the first baby. <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> because it was a, a foolhardy thing to do to think you can have a baby and do a master's degree in the same year. We got through it and it was a great year. But um, when I came back, I really reconsidered whether to go into private practice. And, and that's where I made a segue into administrative law. But, you know, this is a truly incredible job. Um, I love that we're, we get to do something quite new. We get to be very creative. We work really closely with the public and community advocates. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to talk to lots of people about what we're doing and, and uh, get a lot of different ideas from a lot of different corners of the world. Well, I think what you're doing and, and the initiative that British Columbia has taken is, is truly remarkable. Um, when I, I'm originally from California and um, you know some of these changes and innovations you might expect from you know, the home of Silicon Valley and to see it happening elsewhere, and, and the same is true across the United States, that they're, it's a little slower in terms of uh, taking up ideas like this and actually making it part of uh, a government program and an initiative. Um, what do you think made it, made it different here in British Columbia? Yeah, it's a question I've thought about a lot. And, and the only common theme I can see in jurisdictions which now are managing to get some really innovative projects up and running and, and ones where this has stalled or not happened at all, it seems to be just a confluence of, I think, the right people in the right place at the right time. And I'm not counting myself as one of those people, but I think in British Columbia, when the legislation was passed, the Civil Resolution Tribunal Act in 2012, it was the brainchild of this really forward-thinking group of people in the Ministry of Justice who uh, were, you know, experts in ODR, experts in access to justice who championed it. And all the way up to the highest levels of government, there was support. And that's what caused it to happen initially. And we've been lucky enough to enjoy um, a lot of support subsequently and, and more and more public support as well. But it, it does seem to be a matter of just kind of the right people in the right place at the right time uh, that can, can generate these things. Although, you know, maybe there's something in the water out here on the West Coast as well. <laughs> so it's been seven years since the legislation passed. How long has it been that CRT has been launched online? The legislation was passed in 2012. Um, I was appointed in 2014, and then we opened our doors virtually in 2016. And then as I've kind of recounted, every year or so, we managed to acquire a new area of jurisdiction. So we've actually only been operational for almost three years now. But we've handled over 10,000 disputes in that time, and we're set to increase to ultimately hand, handle you know, an additional 30,000 motor vehicle disputes a year, in addition to our current caseload of about 6,000 uh, disputes every year. So it's um, really been an ex uh, exponential growth. But the way we've been able to manage that is using an agile development process not only for the technology development, but also for the tribunal's operations as well. So we make sure that we're constantly adapting uh, to public demand and staying pretty glued to public feedback. How many people work together with you? I think now we're up to uh, about 65, including full-time tribunal members and staff members. Um, it's strange for me to think that when I was appointed in 2014, I was the only 
uh, person with the CRT, although we worked really closely with a group in the ministry to implement the tribunal. Um, and then we just sort of kept growing and growing and growing. And we expect to grow quite a lot in the next couple of years as we build up um, to, to handle motor vehicle disputes. But we, you know, our, our staff and our members are all over the province. Uh, most of our staff members and our full-time tribunal members work remotely, uh, as do I most of the time. So we've really been able to attract some fantastic talent um, all over the province. And as you can probably tell, I'm extremely proud of the team that we've put together. Yeah, for good reason. And I think, um, I think that trend towards uh, remote working is something that is becoming becoming more and more common, and it does provide a real strong uh, base for recruiting top talent. Absolutely, we've we have among some of our full time members people who have left private practice or left other positions um, because they need a little bit of flexibility in their life. So they're prepared to work in the public sector, even though you know the compensation is on average lower because there's flexibility because it's a chance to do highly intellectual work in a really creative collaborative environment but also because if they're working from home they're not stuck in traffic for you know an hour and a half a day they're able to see their kids that much sooner they're able to put a load of laundry in at lunchtime and just generally make their life work so flexibility i've discovered is just a massive advantage when you're recruiting uh, excellent talent mm -hmm. Okay, so the Civil Resolution Tribunal, it's an online portal where people can go, the general public can go to, let's see, resolve motor vehicle accident and injury disputes. It's up to $50,000 now, right? That's right, for motor vehicle disputes. Then small claim disputes that are 5000 and under, and strata property disputes. And for my American friends, strata is like homeowners association. Uh, disputes you might have in your condo. And then I also see a note here that starting June 1st of this year, societies and cooperative association disputes will be handled too. That's right. We're not expecting too many of those based on the information we have, but currently those disputes go to the BC Supreme Court. There are disputes that can arise in your, you know, in your softball league or in mm. a cooperative housing association. Um, and so those are very much membership driven organizations, obviously, where relationships matter. And so a CRT process that is affordable, that focuses on mediation, um, we're hopeful will help resolve those disputes less expensively and also help preserve the relationships uh, wherever possible. Right. Um, so one that I noticed that isn't on here that um, probably gets a lot of, a lot of uh, volume would be landlord tenant type issues. Is that something for the future? There's actually a separate tribunal in British Columbia called the Residential Tenancy Branch that handles those disputes. And you're right, there's tons of them. I think last time I checked, they handle about 20,000 of them a year. But they are also using the CRT technology. They have a solution explorer like we do, which is our front-end legal information tool. And they're using more and more online dispute resolution as are a number of other um, administrative tribunals or what you'd call administrative courts in the U.S. We've got about 27 of them in B.C., all to do with different kinds of benefits or disputes, and a number of them have adopted the CRT technology. Wow. Okay, so let's say I'm in a fender bender and uh, it's under 50 grand. I have whiplash and I need to, you know, file, file my claim. If I do that, um, well, I guess I have to do that, right, through the CRT now? That is correct. We have exclusive jurisdiction over uh, certain kinds of motor vehicle disputes, so entitlement to accident benefits, uh, damages $50,000 and under, and also this determination about whether an injury is minor, which is a defined term under the Act. Hmm. So what, not, not, to go into too much detail, but no. to, to, <laughs> but to give people an idea of like what what is it? How does it work? Like if some sure. like I have a claim, I go onto uh, the the CRT website yeah. and I'm looking to start my claim. Is it just I enter some information about you know regular contact information and describe my injury, or how does that work and how does it get resolved? Sure. 
Well, the first step is for people to use something called the Solution Explorer, which if your listeners are interested, uh, they can access just from our website at civilresolutionbc.ca. It's free to use, it's anonymous, you don't have to have filed a CRT dispute. It's basically, it's an expert system or a guided hmm. pathway system. So we ask people basic questions and we use their answers to be able to give them targeted legal information and tools, self-help tools like template letters or worksheets. Um, so people can use that. If you're in a fender, fender bender, that's probably your first step is to, after of course you've sought medical treatment <laughs> and done all of the right. uh, initial things that you need to do when you have an accident. But if you're wondering about your claim and what you might be entitled to, the Solution Explorer can give you that plain language legal information. So this comes from sitting down with lawyers and asking them questions about you know, steps people should take, things they should know, any deadlines that are applicable, what their options are. And um, this is all written in a very basic, like plain language, grade six reading level. So once somebody has found out more about their dispute, um, a bit more about their claim, they can negotiate with their insurer or they can get legal advice, or they can come and uh, file an application for dispute resolution with the CRT. And that's where they would fill out an online application form. It seamlessly, the system seamlessly brings them to that form from the Solution Explorer. We take care of serving the respondent. That's not something they have to figure out. Oh, and nice. uh, when the parties come back in, when both sides are, are, have come back into the process, they're invited to negotiate. And this looks very much like Facebook Messenger or any other chat function you have on your phone. And in fact, you can do this whole thing from your phone. Um, you don't need any, <laughs> you can fill out forms, you can create the letters from your phone, um, whenever it works for you. So you can do that when your kids are in bed or you're done school or work for the day. Um, and so when the, if the parties are able to reach an agreement during negotiation, then a mediator will step in and help them formalize that agreement. And then it's assigned to a tribunal member who will turn it into a, basically a binding court order. If they can't agree during negotiation, then the case moves on to the mediation phase where one of our expert mediators steps in and starts working with the parties. Uh, going back okay. and forth. And this can be very flexible. Yeah, sorry to step in, no, but, but so there is a there is an opportunity to have a real person there. Yeah, this is a very human-driven process. I mean, the solution explorer, that first step is um, handled by the system. It's just questions and answers. Uh, so there's no staff involvement there. There's very little staff involvement at the negotiation phase. But as the case uh, moves along the process, more humans get involved. So the idea is resolve as many disputes as you can upfront, inexpensively, with a minimal, uh, with the, the system doing the heavy lifting and not the humans. But mm -hmm. as it's clear that a dispute is more complex or needs more attention, that's where we start adding in humans. So our facilitators or mediators are, are humans um, and they are very good at helping parties to reach agreements where possible. And although we're pr predominantly online, we also um, offer services by mail, telephone, video conferencing and in-person at various government service counters. But what surprised us is over 99.9% .9 of people choose email and web-based services, even when given the other options. Wow, right, and, and probably texting too. They use a lot of. Yeah, we we don't use a lot of we don't use texting yet, but we do um, rely heavily on email and our web portal. Although texting is something that we're looking at expanding to in the future, like sending people, for example, a text message that they have a notification, uh, that, like a settlement offer to respond to. Um, and I, I should just mention that if a case does not settle through mediation, then a the last stage is adjudication. And that looks a bit more court-like in the sense that the parties upload their evidence, they exchange submissions, and all of that is packaged up and assigned electronically to a tribunal member who's independent and uh, makes a binding decision. And that decision is usually emailed to the parties if that's what they've chosen. Um, and that decision is an enforceable court order. But that decision is made based on the papers that are submitted, right? And the res and the actual decision is given online? Yes, that's the usual course is that uh, in most cases, the tribunal member reviews the evidence, reviews the party's arguments, applies the applicable law, writes a decision, and that decision is emailed to the parties. 
There are some cases though where it's necessary to have an oral hearing, in which case the parties will participate from their smartphone, um, from their homes uh, or their offices, just using Skype. Well, I mean, this entire process that you've described, it, it sounds like the way it should be, right? <laughs> um, that's usually the reaction when you when you tell people about this. Um, yeah. like, oh, that sounds very sensible. That's kind of how I do everything <laughs> else in my life, you know? Um, and to the extent that we've been able to design technology that looks like what people are already doing in their life, that's been a huge advantage. So it's not a coincidence that the negotiation portal looks like a chat function um, right. or that the solution explorer looks like you know, clicking, just clicking on radio buttons. All of these things are familiar. These are things we do every day and it really reduces people's anxiety level when you make it intuitive for them. Well, it, it also certainly removes delays that might happen as they do in the court system where you show up and it's just a matter of, oh, the other party's not there. You get a continuance. Now it's like 30 to 60 days out again and you have to come back for something that would probably be a very minor uh, issue to take care of. And, yeah, uh, I think one yeah. of the benefits of an administrative tribunal is that it's a bit more flexible. Um, so the, the strict rules of evidence don't apply in exactly the same way. Evidence still needs to be reliable and relevant, but um, you know, there's, there's more flexibility under administrative law. But yeah, your, our goal is to reduce administrative delay. And one of the best ways to do that is to design forms and uh, information in partnership with community legal advocates who serve really barriered folks in society. Because if you can make um, those forms understandable and work for people who otherwise would fall through the cracks, they're going to work for the public generally. They're going to work for lawyers. Um, but if you don't do that, if you don't do the human-centered design piece and you just design forms by lawyers, essentially, or judges or court administrators for lawyers, um, it's not surprising that the number of forms that get bounced from the registry or people who have to come back and correct information or pay other fees or come down to the courthouse for no reason, you're right, all of that creates delay. But it also erodes confidence in the justice system. I think it makes people feel that it's not designed for them, that it doesn't belong for them, that they don't belong. And so if we can design all of this through people's eyes in partnership with them, um, I, I actually think it does really restore or create more confidence in, in the public justice system. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so this model, it, it already has expanded to many different areas. And as you pointed out, it's the same model that's being employed on, on the landlord-tenant landlord side. Um, what Are there any areas of law that you think might might be inappropriate for having an online solution like this? I think we just don't know yet what the limits are. Um, I don't know if there's any area of the law that wouldn't benefit from human-centered design, at least as a reality check to compare what people's perceptions are and what their needs are to what the legal requirements are. That's where, as lawyers, we're, we're really valuable um, because the public are experts in what they need, what their lives look like, what they are able to understand or not understand, what kinds of problems they're trying to solve. And then the key is how do you design a process that meets those needs while still giving effect to foundational legal principles like the rule of law, procedural fairness, um, and, and so on. That's where the creativity comes into play because if, if the rule of law, if but, you know, legal requirements are the goalposts. There's often lots of different ways to meet those objectives if we think creatively about uh, how to do that. So uh, I know I'm not really answering your question. The truth is, I just I don't know, but it's worth asking. And I don't think we've asked that question in a lot of areas of the law yet. I can certainly think of areas where um, I think online dispute resolution probably would yield tremendous promise, uh, for example, in family law, where Almost yeah. by definition, you have people who have everyday legal problems, often children involved, where collaborative dispute resolution that focuses on mediation, that's less adversarial, that's more flexible, uh, that's more accessible and less expensive, uh, all yeah. of those things would likely yield a lot of benefits for, for everyday families. There may be exceptions where you don't want to use that process, like you, know, you might want to think pretty carefully about it in, in domestic abuse cases or or others. but for your average um, family that's going through a separation and divorce, 
online dispute resolution, I think, could have a lot of promise. Well, you you'd mentioned human-centered design. How do you design something like the CRT? And who do you, you know? Who do you involve in that? Do you? I mean, there's a lot of mistakes on the one hand that have been made in in legal tech that we've seen where the solution kind of comes before the the problem is defined how do you approach it well i think if if we're honest we just didn't exactly know at the outset um and again this is not just me this is a an incredible team that uh, really put this together from uh, a group within the ministry of justice to uh, contractors, subcontractors, and CRT staff. But I think using an agile development pro uh, process was pretty key to our success. And the reason I say that is because we learned a lot throughout the process and, and uh, using agile allows you to have breaks to go out and user test, to rethink, mm -hmm. um, to build things in bite-sized pieces of functionality and test to see if you got it right, and then rearrange them like Lego blocks if you didn't instead of building an entire thing over two or three years and many millions of dollars and then finding out the hard way it doesn't meet public need. So the incremental user testing approach um, was really valuable to us. And I could probably spill, you know, fill up a couple of podcast hours of yours <laughs> just explaining all the things we got wrong along the way. But the good thing for us is that we got a lot of little stuff wrong along the way that we learned through user testing were wrong early. Right. And that stopped us from getting the the big thing wrong at the end. And I really think you only have two choices. Um, you either <laughs> fail a lot along the way or you fail big time at the end. And so part of the exercise though was a psychological one, I think, of, of putting our assumptions to, to one side, putting our ego to one side and just being humble kind of observers and listeners um, mm -hmm. when we're, we're talking to people and, and user testing. Well, it was Thomas Edison, right? That he uh, warned against giving up that it was 10,000 times that he tried it and it was the you know 10,000 and first time that it succeeded so you got to put that effort into it and then hope for the best yeah I, I think that's right we are still using that agile process even though we're up and running we're never going to stop every two or three weeks our team meets triages public feedback staff feedback stakeholder feedback and uh, triages changes that need to be made and they're made quickly. Uh, we don't let ourselves get terribly off track before changing. We're constantly course correcting. And I think that's a huge risk mitigation strategy. And it's, you know, a lot of these techniques are things that private sector software companies do, but the public sector has different incentives and that can be challenging as well in terms of implementing an agile project, I think. And just for people that are listening and may not be familiar with Agile, um, what's like a real quick working definition of Agile? Well, I, I, I think experts could give you a much better definition than this one, but Agile requires you to be really focused on what people are trying to do. So you break things into stories. You know, as a party, I need to be able to upload evidence, for example. And then you work backwards to figure out the best way to give effect, to create that functionality in really bite-sized pieces. So the best analogy I can think of is that, you know, you build a few Lego blocks, then you test it and say, is this what you had in mind? Is this going to work? Let's test it. And then if you validate that it works, you can build a few more pieces and a few more. You keep on testing and the agility comes from being willing and able to, to shift, to shift from the blueprint, to shift and adapt based on user feedback or based on, on testing and experimentation um, so that you can have some confidence that the thing that you build at the end is actually gonna meet the needs of everybody who has to use it. What would you say was or is the biggest obstacle that you've overcome in rolling out the CRT? I think the, the biggest obstacle has been not the technology, it hasn't been the law, uh, it hasn't been the public, it's been a change management among legal stakeholders. Uh, when I was mm. appointed, I didn't anticipate that change management would be a good half of what I did for the first couple of years. And it's still a big part of what I do on a daily basis. And it's important. But the change, the change management part wasn't so much having to persuade the public. I mean, I, I would do town hall meetings with two or 300 members of the public on a 
Tuesday night at a community center and they were on board as were many community advocates, especially as we sort of built trust with them by centering the needs of their clients when we did user testing. But I think the legal profession generally is very change resistant. And so when you're having to you know, deal with a number of larger institutions that can be resistant to change, including government, including the justice system, including the lead, you know, lawyers, um, that's where the challenges happened. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as a prof, I see too that the way that we teach lawyers to be lawyers does not encourage them to think creatively or critically about justice system reform. In a lot of ways, it teaches them just to accept the way things are and to be quite concerned when somebody proposes changes. I mean, that's the that's the whole nature of the precedent system of, of common law, if you think about right. it. It's, it's about really prioritizing the past and stare decisis over some sort of strange thing that could develop in the future. There's a deeply ingrained skepticism about change. Um, but right. I think that, and I think that's probably served to protect certain legal principles very well, for better or for worse in some cases, but it certainly is not very conducive to justice system reform. So let me take a concrete, concrete example of, of that. Um, so with the, the change recently, April 1st, that the CRT is handling uh, personal injury cases that are 50,000 and below, I would imagine that would have quite an impact on, on, um, on lawyers and the business they, that they do in British Columbia, right? That's, that's true. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, British Columbia is the, was the last full tort jurisdiction in North America, is my understanding, for personal injury disputes. So this is a pretty significant change uh, for the bar. Um, and I think it, you know, it's, it's certainly one that's very controversial in the bar. Yeah. Well, how do you, you know, how do you manage that change? I, I mean... I'm doing all kinds of presentations and educational seminars with lawyers. I think lawyers are an, are an important stakeholder group. They are gatekeepers of information. They are powerful advocates. And I think for the most part, many lawyers generally, not within any specific practice area, but generally a lot of lawyers are quite supportive of the CRT, especially after they've had a chance to ask some questions and know more about it. Um, that said, lawyers are not our most important stakeholder group. Um, the way that we do user testing at the CRT, the way we develop everything, is to focus on community legal advocates. Um, because yeah. ideally, we'd be focusing on their clients, clients who have a low income, who don't speak English as a first language, who might have mental health issues or uh, physical disabilities. Often times their clients have more pressing things to do than to test our technology for us. Right. Um, but the advocates have been very, very generous with their time and they know what their clients need. And so they are the center. They are the center. The public is the center in terms of um, testing and making sure that uh, whatever we develop works for them. This is a public access to justice uh, project. And so um, the change, man change management with lawyers is important, but um, I think public buy-in and buy-in from advocates is is really really important. Definitely. Um, so I imagine the day to day when you know when you're dealing with the case load that's coming through the CRT, that all of the different transactions and and communications, that there must be some metrics that you that you track to to kind of get get a broader view of how things are working and so what are what are some of those metrics that you track and why which ones are important and why yeah that that's um a, a really important thing to us we publish our statistics every month uh, not just our caseload statistics but also participant satisfaction statistics so there's a number of qualitative and quantitative stats that I think are important. I think in terms of the quantitative statistics, we keep an eye on how long is it taking to resolve disputes? Um, what percentage of disputes are settling and at what stage in the process? Those kinds of things um, are, are important in terms of 
um, understanding how much is this really costing the party in terms of their time and energy and money. But I think even more important in some ways are the qualitative statistics or metrics. So we ask people who've gone through the process what they think of it. We don't ask them if they agree with the outcome because you know, they're welcome right. to appeal the decision if they disagree, and that's a question for the courts. But we do ask them if uh, the CRT treated them fairly throughout the process. We ask them if they understood what they had to do uh, to go through the process, if the technology worked well for them. Um, and we ask them if they would recommend the CRT process to uh, others. And so you can check out our stats from past month. But for example, last month, 84% of people said that the CRT treated them fairly throughout the process. And the same number of people, 80% or percentage, 84% of people said that they would recommend the CRT to others. Those to me are very, very important statistics. We want people to feel that they were treated fairly. That's the primary job of the public justice system is to treat people fairly. Um, so we keep on, we'll, we'll keep on publishing these statistics. We use them as a source of feedback that we um, implement. You know, those are the stats, but we get a lot of comments as well, both positive and constructive, and we take all of that on board as well. Well, those numbers sound pretty impressive to me. And uh, another thing I find impressive about it is that you're actually asking, <laughs> I think, uh, from my experience with a lot of government agencies, they don't necessarily ask me how I felt about the process. So, so I think it's, you know, it's important to know that. Um, it's, it's also usually something that, pri you know, that, that's done in private industry where you want like exactly that uh, question, you know, would you refer me to uh, a friend or a family member? Um, do you think, so that's something similar to private practice, but do you think that there's different approaches to how, um, you know, private companies approach access to justice versus how the public approaches to access to justice? Is there a difference? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and online dispute resolution was really born out of private sector startups that saw the need to resolve disputes less expensively, often trans-border e-commerce disputes like PayPal and eBay did. Uh, and they also, I think, are increasingly common in, in the context of a vacuum created by the failure of the public justice system, in pretty much every country I've been to, to reform. And so mm -hmm. where uh, the public system becomes increasingly inaccessible, there is a, an opportunity for entrepreneurs to start legal technology companies to fill particular niche gaps. But those startups um, pick their market segment and uh, can tailor their services, as is their right, tailor their services to a particular demographic. They can say, I'm going to resolve uh, family disputes for high income earners who speak English as a first language. That is not something that you can do as a public uh, justice system access to justice project. My job is to worry about everybody. And I spend most of my team and I spend most of our time worrying about people who would fall through the cracks. I mean, this pretty much any kind of online tool is going to work okay for, for most people, unless it, if it's designed reasonably well. But that's not good enough in the public justice context. It needs to work for everybody, or at least you need to have systems in place that will catch everybody so that everybody can access it because it belongs to everyone. So I think that's not to say that there isn't a place for, for private sector uh, legal tech startups. I think there absolutely is. Where I get worried is I, I worry about the, the increasing gap created where you know, the public uh, justice system becomes more and more inaccessible for people. Private startups target market segments, particular market segments. But where does that leave everybody else? Where does that leave people who are harder to serve, who are less lucrative um, and for whatever reason cannot access the public system? And so that's always sort of my plea in, in rooms full of public justice uh, stakeholders is to say we need to modernize um, because otherwise we risk the public system becoming increasingly obsolete and irrelevant. Hmm. Well, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot ahead and, and there's a lot that the CRT can do. And it sounds like it's just growing exponentially uh, in terms of the people that are handling it and the people that are being, that are satisfied by their 
um, by their use of the CRT. What what is your vision for the CRT over the next five years? Uh, I think my vision is to keep our laser focus on public need and to expand our capacity to identify areas of public need that maybe we have a blind spot about or are underserving. And we can do that by collecting more demographic information to understand better who, who we're serving well and who we may not be serving as well and make sure that we account for that. Um, there are a lot of things that I think um, areas where we can keep expanding. Uh, you know, obviously we have a lot more cases coming our way with motor vehicle disputes and we'll you know, in increase our staff and tribunal member cohort uh, to deal with that. And that'll be our main focus. But there are areas where we can use uh, data better to identify uh, need and to respond to need better, where we can um, do even better user testing, even better public outreach, where we can use behavioral insights to um, help encourage people to negotiate or talk with each other, um, where we can use artificial intelligence in a thoughtful, transparent, public-centered way uh, to provide new tools for people. So I think there's a lot of different areas for growth and expansion, but the key driver for us is what is in the public interest, what is the public need, um, and how do we keep making sure that we're staying very tightly glued to that? Well, all of those possibilities and opportunities sound very exciting. And I think the, the part I find most impressive is that you bring it back to keeping it grounded, you know, because it is very uh, easy especially in, in technology and now with legal tech getting such attention over the past year um, financially mm -hmm. for people to just kind of pick up and come up with uh, some idea that is not necessarily founded in, in that, um, how does this benefit the public, but more about That's how does it benefit the bottom line? That's true. And that's absolutely the, the purview of, of the private sector. And there's, you know, that's, that's the prerogative of the private sector. For the public system, though, one thing that I hear a lot of um, talk about is, well, we don't have uh, the, the fancy technology that the CRT has. We don't have a huge budget. And I hear this from courts and tribunals around the world. And increasingly, my response to that is that the most important thing you can do is offline. It doesn't require any money at all. Um, it requires a, a sincere culture shift, though, to walk outside the registry doors or whatever your equivalent is and start talking to the people in line at the registry mm. and ask them questions about how they got there, what their case is about, where they found the process confusing, um, what it took for them to get there today in terms of parking and time off work and childcare, uh, what confused them, ask them to fill out your forms on a clipboard. Uh, watch where they get hung up, watch where they make mistakes, and then keep on doing that. And then use that information to redesign your processes and your systems from the perspective of the user. And you don't actually need any technology to do most of that. Uh, right. And to the extent that you decide to use technology, you can do actually a lot of that with just Microsoft Office and a, and a web page. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think it's worth mentioning when we opened in 2016, we had uh, the Solution Explorer, but besides that, we just had an, uh, an online application form, uh, two lockdown Excel spreadsheets and a SharePoint site. That was the sum total of our case management software. Um, and the rest of that was process redesign and user testing. Um, so you can do quite a lot with, with very little, uh, and, but it does require a, a real culture shift. And I think that's actually much harder than the technology part. I think that's great advice. You know. Get out of the office. <laughs> Talk to real people. <laughs> Good advice uh, for all of us all the time. But uh, but yeah, it, this is not about technology. I mean, I think really the gift of online dispute resolution is not the online part at all. It's the invitation to think critically about why it is we're doing every little thing that we're doing, to look for evidence that supports it, to look for um, research that supports it, uh, supports it. And I'll just give you one small example. We um, have a fee waiver on our website. And so people, we, we developed it with community legal advocates. If somebody 
can't afford to pay court, basically tribunal fees. They just click that they're on a government assistance program or enter their income and then click that that's true. The reason we designed it to be so simple is that I could not find any evidence that suggests that the court process used in a lot of jurisdictions where a person who's already very disadvantaged has to go around on public transit and get documentation, go to court, and then in open court, kind of do the humiliating exercise in some cases of explaining all of their personal financial information, all so that a pretty modest court fee can be waived. I found nothing, we found nothing that supports that. So why are we routinely making life extra difficult and sometimes embarrassing uh, for people who are already heavily barriered in our society? Um, so I think a lot of the things that we, we do kind of routinely without questioning um, are not actually supported by empirical evidence. And so ODR invites us to question everything, uh, to think critically about it, to seize the opportunity to completely redesign it from the perspective of, of the public. Uh, while of course not letting go of those foundational legal principles. So it's not so much the online part, it's I think the invitation to be imaginative that's really the gift of online dispute resolution. Yes, the old scientific method and a dose of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> so um, on, on a personal note, I, I know that you're extremely, extremely busy. Like you, I, I'm so appreciative of you uh, doing this this interview with me because I've looked at your speaking engagements. I've seen your uh, your tweets on Twitter, and I know that you're kind of a blur of motion usually in terms of all the engagements you have. And my question for you on that note is just, how do you do it? How do you <laughs> how do you keep up with with all of those things? Well, I don't have a lot of hobbies or much of a social life, <laughs> as as is the case of, I, of most people I know who uh, have young young kids, which I do. But the the honest answer too is that I'm really lucky to have a very supportive uh, husband who um, is also a lawyer, but makes it possible for me to do a lot of these things by being a real equal partner in our in this whole enterprise um, of having a busy work and family life, but. The other part of it is that you know, that's my personal life, but at work, we have an incredible team I keep going on about, and they have so much energy and they put in so much extra time and they're so passionate and motivated. And so it's a real multiplier effect of what we're able to accomplish as a relatively small organization uh, because they're so committed. So I'm grateful on a lot of fronts every day uh, for all of those folks. Um, and, and, and that's really been, I think, key to our success is their passion. Well, I'd like to give a shout out to them too and say thank you so much for the work that you do because it's uh, it's really making a big difference in the world. Me too, I'm grateful. Um, so one other question for the newly graduated lawyer coming out of law school now, what advice would you give him or her? And would it be to pursue the practice of law or would it be something else? Yeah, I, I get asked that a lot by my my students, and I think the the best piece of advice I can give, and it's not mine, it was it's something I've heard from smart people, is to really try to find a way to make sure that there's no cognitive dissonance between what you do all day for work and what your beliefs are and your core values are, and that's a really privileged thing. Obviously, a lot of people don't have the ability to to do that. Um, but we as lawyers are lucky because we have a lot of opportunities. We are really privileged by our education. And so for some people, that'll be practicing at a big law firm. Um, but I think the, the one of the problems that I see among my students is that they're still sort of told this idea that unless they land at a big firm, they're not successful. And the reality is that very few of them will land at a big firm. And even those who do won't always want to stay there or find that it suits their their purpose or their values or their interests. And so I, I just encourage them to think really broadly about what it is they value, what they want to do in the world, how can they make that work with their life and not to get too hung up on what it is other people think of as success. And I think part of that though, is if you do decide that practicing is, is your passion and, and what you want to do, then we have to think really critically, I think as new lawyers about what your value proposition is. And that's the reason that's so important is because that's a really shifting goalpost in today's society. Uh, so if you use the CRT as an example, 
we've taken pretty complex areas of the law and made them pretty digestible, grade six reading level digestible, uh, where you can engage from your smartphone. So if you were previously a lawyer whose job it was to, to do that, to be the intermediary, to be the liaison between this really complicated process that you know how to navigate as a lawyer and the member of the public who doesn't, if those processes get streamlined through things like the CRT, then that means that your value proposition has to shift. And I think there's a lot of really creative ways that lawyers can add a lot of value um, and, and do a lot of very high value work in the context of the CRT or other um, initiatives like this. But it does require us to think a little bit more about what does the business model look like? What does our overhead need to be? What is it that people want um, specifically in terms of services? How much can they pay for that? But there's a lot of opportunity too, I think, if people are prepared to think more broadly about what it means to practice and, and how to practice. That's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. And I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, the new grads will appreciate it. Um, you know, alt legal uh, is definitely a, a growing alternative to um, just practicing law. You know, there's a lot of other opportunities available, like you said. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And technology also makes it possible to, I think, have a better work-life balance, lower overhead, um, maybe fewer downtown offices in some cases, but it gives you a, a much broader scope if we can kind of let go of some of the more traditional artifacts of what it looks like to practice law and just focus more on what it is people need. I think we can really open up the range of services that we provide to people. And, and also possibly improve our own quality of life as lawyers in some cases too. Well, it sounds good to me. <laughs> well, thank I mean, you. I say all this as somebody who's not actually practicing law. So easy for, easy for me to say, I really, I, I, you know, I'm not in the trenches every day in that, in that regard. So take it with a grain of salt, these easy opinions of mine. Well, thank you, Shannon, for your words of wisdom. I, I do appreciate it and I'm sure they will too. Well, thank you very much for having me, Tom. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I love getting to know you better and understanding how the CRT works. And and um, how can people follow up with you or, you know, follow you, keep track of what you're up to um, online? Yeah. That that's great. We are pretty active on Twitter, as you as you mentioned. It's been a really great way to connect with the public and, and get people to user test our our stuff. So we're at Civ Res Tribunal on Twitter, or you can follow me at Shannon and Salter on Twitter. We can go to our website, uh, civilresolutionbc.ca, uh, for more information as well. Well, thank you again, Shannon, for being my guest today. Thanks so much, Tom. And thank you all for listening into our podcast, What the Future of the Courts Looks Like Today, with Shannon Salter. Again, uh, this is Tom Martin. I want to thank GLSA for sponsoring. Remember, joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. Check us out at glsaonline.org. See you next month.